seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. This is the A-Side, and I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. My co-host, Amy Therese, is currently off in Australia and enjoying her summer vacation while the rest of us freeze half to death. So everybody send uh, hate tweets and hate mail to Amy, and uh, she'll be back next week. But for our purposes today, joining us on the program, I'm very happy to have Michael Walker. Michael is the host of the Tisky Sour podcast for Novara Media, and he is an editor at Novara Media as well, and he does a lot of fine work with those fellows over in the UK. Michael Walker, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Uh, pleasure to be here. So really happy to connect with you guys over at Navarra. I've been a listener for a year or more at this point, and I'm always astonished to the extent to which people in the US who should otherwise know better have not yet heard of Novara. And so I wanted to not only talk to you about the goings on and the absurdity of Brexit and the Corbyn phenomenon and all the rest of it, but also just as a way of kind of introducing my audience uh, to your team and, and your work and what you do in the, in the media realm. And so uh, really, really happy to talk about this. So talk to me a little bit about the origins of Novara. It's my understanding you came uh, on, on the team, you arrived on the team at, in uh, 2015. But take us back to the beginning, if you don't mind. Who who were uh, who amongst your uh, your your comrades here uh, founded that project, and how did you become involved? Yeah, for sure. So so I came along in 2015. I mean, Navarra Media has gone sort of on a political journey that's very similar to the British left since well, when it was founded in 2011 or 2012. I'm not sure what the exact date was, uh, but it started as a podcast with Aaron Bastani and James Butler. Uh, so that was a weekly one on uh, Resonance FM, which is sort of like political and arts radio station in London. Uh, and from then, I think people sort of basically other leftists emailed and said, oh, we want to help you do podcasts. And other people emailed and said, oh, we want to help you build a website. Uh, and so it's, it's grown from there. Um, and yeah, as you say, I joined in 2015. That was just as Corbyn was getting, well, close to winning the leadership of the Labour Party. And so that was the point at which Navarra Media started covering the Labour Party much more. I think within the organization, I'm I'm the furthest along the path of becoming comfortable with social democracy. So the, the organization came <laughs> came out of sort of autonomous politics and what was a so sort you're of, suggesting that you're not a communist, you idiot. I'm not a communist, you idiot. No, not not a fully automated <laughs> luxury one either. So so Aaron Bastani, yeah, he's a fully automated luxury communist. Yeah, uh, that's right. Ash Sarkar is a communist, you idiot. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a bog standard. Well, I call myself a class war social democrat. Yeah. Okay. So you're, 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 a, you're a, uh, position yourself on the left of the left, uh, trying to go in and through social democracy as in, on a path to socialism per, per se. And then, um, it's fun. It's actually quite interesting to see the debates that you, you guys have on your platform. Mm. Um, you, you bring in the likes of Owen Jones. Who, yep. Um, I, I loathe and despise these these ridiculous left to right political spectrums because mm. I find that they're just uh, sort of oftentimes ways to pe for people to express their vanity about how far left they are, how extreme they find themselves to be. But uh, you often have Owen Jones on the show as well, and you know he, he might he might be if you were to buy into that left right spectrum further to your right even. So to have that that collection of um, kind of have that heterodoxy on the show. 
and have a, a good, good, uh, good faith debate amongst comrades um, who, who want the same things and value the same goals and aims. Uh, it's a really productive thing. And it's not something that really happens in the United States very much. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's good. I mean, especially with, so Owen, Owen Jones is definitely more mainstream than, than our platform. I mean, he's very, very successful. But I mean, I've had a few conversations with him where uh, an onlooker would think I was the more right wing of the two. <laughs> in terms of being more, I don't know, uh, uh, brutally reformist in a way. I don't know. Not very romantic with my socialism. He's he's a bit more romantic with his socialism. Than I am. He is. He's a, he is. A, you had Paul Mason on the show recently, who argued for um, a remain and rebel strategy that he's been pushing. Yeah, he's uh, to the right of me, but that's because he's really into nuclear weapons and uh, anti-Russia politics. Much as I think he's an incredible thinker and a, a, a great friend of the show, Paul Mason always has something very interesting to say, but some very idiosyncratic uh, political position to yeah. someone who is so committed and so committed to being an asset to to the British left, as I think as I think right. Paul is. I think that's right. So, anyways, that's just to say, you know, I mean, the the kind of anti-sectarian ethos of the program is something that um, I really value and cherish, particularly over here in the United States. Wherein, you know, I don't know, we uh, various left podcasts uh, find themselves at odds over the most kind of seemingly mm. minuscule, uh, you know, differences. And, and, and I take part in it, you know, mea culpa, I'm guilty as well. Uh, but at the same time, I, I really do think that you have uh, something special over there wherein your, your kind of connection to one another as friends and comrades transcends the kind of uh, relatively minuscule political differences mm. uh, that you have between each other. And so, uh, yeah. It's really not really a question. Just <laughs> well, thanks for spreading the gospel. Adam. Uh, yeah. I hope you are, I hope your American listeners do check us out. I'm like the guy at the political meeting who stands up and uh, not really a question, more <laughs> of a comment. And then I spout on for 10 minutes about, uh, about your project. Everyone hates that guy, Adam, but that, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think don't. that is the role you're playing. <laughs> don't be that guy. <laughs> yeah. Don't be that guy. So yeah, so uh, so folks should definitely check out Navarre. I think that at this point, a majority of my audience is familiar with you guys, but uh, perhaps not weekly listeners, and perhaps not uh, people who support the project with their hard-earned wages, and they should be if if they're out there. So, in any case, talk to us a little bit about the political vision of Navarre right now, because I don't want to just make this about uh, Navarre, but I want to sort of uh, kind of I like to clue in my mm-hmm. listeners. It's kind of like what we're all about. This isn't just about you know randomly selecting guests and topics each week and just sort of throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. I think you, as I do, um, see yourselves as being sort of engaged in a, in a, in a much more kind of a medium to long-term game here. So talk to us a little bit about the kind of conversations you guys are having right now and how you see yourself intervening in British politics. Yes. I mean, in terms of what is the overall project, I mean, as, as you've intimated to already, we, so we, we define ourselves in, in, uh, different ways of the different members of the, the project. Uh, but I think, obviously, the Labour Party has a leftist leader at this point. Jeremy Corbyn is the most... I mean, people of many different political persuasions can recognise the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn as the best opportunity the left has to advance in Britain right now. What we what we see as the final end goal is, is slightly different between among the editors of, of Navarra Media. But I think uh, one thing that we share and that keeps the project coherent is a desire to be to see having a large audience or to see success as something worth striving for i mean i'd like our audience to be a lot larger than it 
than it currently is. I'm not saying we have the biggest audience around, but I think I've been right. part of left wing projects before where disagreement is allowed to become a problem in and of itself. You know, it has to be resolved that people have different positions because it becomes sort of a every disagreement becomes an opportunity for interpersonal breakdown. Whereas we're very we're we're cool with disagreement. If, if lots of people like we often get not so much anymore but people would sort of like complain that this person came on the show and said something that they think is not you know quite quite right according to them it's just like well don't listen to the show then i mean <laughs> like i do part i do i do partly no i i, I, I that's sounding slightly more um uh dismissive than i than i am i think if people come with sort of like various critiques i want to listen to them but ultimately you know like we want to make a successful show uh, which which hasn't right. always been uh the ethos of the left-wing projects that I've been part of over the last 10 years. I think that's right. There's a drive to sort of purification on the left, right? Oh, yeah. Someone has said something that you disagree with or it's, you know, quote, uh, hashtag problematic. Mm. You know, there's a way that word gets thrown around in a very sort of ill-conceived, ill-defined way. Um, Then we should sort of distance ourselves and disassociate. And I think, you know, one of the, you know, I think you'll agree with this, uh, one of the most generative experiences that one can have in thinking through their politics is to have to sit down and listen to a podcast featuring a guest with whom you vociferously disagree. (laughs) That's one of the hardest things on the podcast because I really want to get more people we disagree with. But to be honest, if you're on, it's it's harder to get, let's say, sort of like notable right-wing people because they can't be bothered to come on the show. <laughs> so, so they don't have that much to yeah. gain by coming on. I think once we're really successful, once we've got like hundred, hundreds of thousands of people watching the show every week, we'll be able to get, uh, you know, the, the really famous right wingers on the show to sort of like have a, have a row with them. Uh, but at this point, people who think they're going to come on and mainly have a row, it's, it's difficult to get those ones. There was one with John McTurnan we did recently. That's very good. He used to be a Tony Blair advisor. So it's, some sparks fly in that one. That was fantastic. I brought I brought up that interview. Um, it was uh, again with Grace Bla- uh, Grace Blakely, former DPS guest as mm. well. Um, yeah, I, I brought up that uh, that debate on the show at one point. It may have been a B side. I don't know. Patrons will have to uh, correct <laughs> me if it wasn't an A side. Um, but I think that was a very generous. It was an incredibly generative debate, extraordinarily generative debate. It really helped kind of reframe for me the experience of being in labor. Mm. Um, in the 90s. And, and although I didn't agree with John on his assessment, and I think it was kind of silly at this point to try to defend um, one's actions um, in, in the 90s in, in the kind of uh, shadow of Thatcher, um, it, it was nonetheless, it was a valuable kind of um, perspective. Mm. you know. And so I think, yeah, I mean, th- I think the value of listening to people with whom you disagree is very much you know, understated on the left right now. And again, you know, look, people can come at me on this. I, I, I bring people on the show that I notoriously fawn over for, for the course of an hour <laughs> and a half. And I'm, I mean, fuck, I'm doing it right now. So, you know, I, I think you and I have a tremendous agreement uh, politically. Um, and so, you know, maybe I could learn from this as well. Maybe we, we could all learn from this. I think there's a, a sort of line, a fine line you have to walk between sort of first kind of building and consolidating a project and I think not to say that you all haven't done that, but the, but, but the legacy and the, the traditions of the labor left in, in the UK are such that um, a lot of those foundations are already there for you. And so you're building on them in a very generative sort of way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, most people in terms of 
I shouldn't overstate how much disagreement we have on those. Show. I mean, I suppose all of the editors, mm-hmm. we disagree with each other sort of within the left. Uh, but you'll often get sort of centrist and right wingers whenever we advertise each week. So saying like, oh, another free left wing is agreeing with each other, which uh, to be honest, if you're if you're from the right, that's a fair enough critique of the show. But I mean, I can say that about a lot of um, right wing podcasts and YouTube channels as well. Sure, sure. So talk to us a little bit about the Corbin moment and Novara. Uh, your team has been instrumental in kind of um, fi- building a certain kind of hegemony on the left. Um, really, it's hard. It's hard. To, I mean, I, I started in the left, you know, in the, the far left, the socialist left in, say, like 2008, 9, 10. And I remember, you know, the, the British SWP was the thing. You know, their Marxism conference each summer was the thing. It was the event. And uh, to find yourself sort of like very, um, to have any influence on what was known as the left in the UK, you sort of had to be in that orbit. And of course, they did a tremendous, you know, they they they, they had several own goals in the past eight to nine years. We don't have to lay those mm. out. But but nonetheless, the the... the the hegemon, you know, the kind of hegemonic kind of uh, relations there on the left have, have just shifted in a way that I never thought would happen in such a relatively short period of time. It's been normalized now, but uh, it seems like you guys are really leading the way. Talk to us about how this shift has occurred. How is it that principled socialists are flocking into the Labour Party? Uh, you guys seem to be really leading the way there. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, the, the event that led the way was, was the election of Jeremy Corbyn to the leadership of the party. I mean, there, there wasn't a particularly broad grassroots move to try and shift the Labour Party to the left. I mean, there were some uh, people in in the left trade unions who who were aiming to do that, but I think the surge of membership of the Labour Party by left wingers who went on to elect Jeremy Corbyn to be leader was was unexpected from all sides. Um, so I suppose where when Avara Media came in is that. First of all, there was a period where there were lots of people from the independent left. Or, I mean, Navarra never really came out of the SWP tradition, um, partly because of lots of the own goals you you talked about. It more came out of the autonomist, kind of anarchist, uh, kind of communist uh, scene, as it were. Um, so, yeah, so back to the narrative. So Jeremy Corbyn was elected in 2015. There's there's sort of a period of about a year where there's like leftists are deciding whether or not to engage with the project. I think most editors at Navarra Media had decided pretty early on the most useful thing for any leftist to do at the moment is is join the Labour Party and get involved. Um, So I think that was one of my drivers, at least, from 2015, was to sort of like help people navigate and understand what it means to join the Labour Party and the Labour movement, which is sort of, you know, in that particular historical situation. And then I think now what we're trying to do as much as as that is to see that there's actually a huge section of the population who are now interested in left-wing politics and we want to speak to them. Uh, Obviously, the British media has not in any way caught up with the rise in interest in left-wing politics and the support for Jeremy Corbyn is very much not reflected in the British media ecology. So to try and fill that space to make sure there is a space where those ideas can be articulated and to actively try and reach out to to many people in the British public who are like, I, I want to understand what socialism is. I want to understand what social democracy is. I want to uh, 
uh, understand whether I should believe all the bullshit that the BBC and the Guardian are telling them about Jeremy Corbyn. So let's back up. I just I just realized it's a little out of order, but uh, we skipped over perhaps the most important aspect of this little introductory portion of our show today. Who is Michael Walker? Where the hell do you come from? What's your background? You plugged into this project at tw- in 2015. Yeah. Um, what 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 is your background? Where, where do you come from? What's your political trajectory, and and how did you find yourself in left wing politics? So I was a little um, black block squatter in in say 20 <laughs> nice. te- no or t- 2008 I suppose that was because I, I remember the the G20 protests in London, which must have. That must have been early 2009. So kind of climate activist slash black block anarchist. Uh, and then, you know, in university, obviously, there was a student movement going on. Uh, and then I sort of fell out with anarchism because I, I found it too, well, one, unrealistic, but two, kind of a bit moralistic and sort of seeing oneself as sort of more enlightened than the rest of the population without ever speaking to anyone else or or speaking to anyone else who would tell you that your ideas are pretty fucking wacky. Um, a big, a big turning point for, for I upset a lot of people whenever I talk about anarchism on the bar media, because I don't think I take it seriously enough anymore. Um, a, a big, a big sort of turning point for me was I moved to Spain in, what was it? That must've been 20, 2014, uh, just at the point where Podemos were, uh, becoming successful and also that was the point at which Syriza had just got elected and were having their showdown um, with uh, the EU and with the Troika and and that moment for me was just very I mean eye-opening in a way to see sort of leftist people with my politics who were engaging with state power who were going to be effective but sort of most importantly were trying to communicate to the majority of the population and I just thought that as as a political project unless you're trying to appeal to the majority of the population, what the hell are you doing? That, I, I mean, that's, again, that's overly dismissive of, I think there's there's lots of use of grassroots politics and et cetera, et cetera. But for me, that's what I find interesting as a political goal. And so living in Spain, sort of getting involved in Podemos, seeing what they were doing, made me think, I want to go back to Britain and, and do something similar there. Uh, and it was sort of, at the end of my year living in Spain, I was going to stay there actually, but then Jeremy Corbyn got elected and I was like, what am I doing here? Speaking shit Spanish, being sort of like the guy who's sort of smiling and laughing <laughs> awkwardly in a pub with Podemos activists where I could be in uh, Britain and actually useful when we're having a similar moment to what the Spanish had in 2014, which was sort of the left really breaking out to become a national force. Right. Indeed, it seemed uh, much more promising in, in, uh, in Britain, of course, when, when you sort of arrived there. It's, isn't it interesting how this kind of what uh, Leo Panich and Sam Gindin now call the movement from protest to politics mm. has really informed our generation um, in such a way? I mean, I have guest after guest after guest. I like to do this like uh, sort of like a quasi Howard Stern mm. show, like kind of chat up at the beginning and, and you know, do what – a lot of people don't like to talk about themselves, so I sort of I sort of press record and force them to do it against <laughs> the will. It's really great to have the bully pulpit here as a podcast host, but um, and I find that to be the case quite often. I mean, I could rail off a dozen guests I've had over the past year uh, year alone that have a very very similar story. Mm-hmm. You know, crust punks, anarchists, black bloc, uh, you know, environmental uh, activists, active in in the uh, kind of uh, anti globalization movement or 
or the occupy, uh, you know, the occupation of the squares uh, movements, and then sort of came up against the limits of uh, what what's um, been called activistism mm. by a former DPS guest, and other types of things like that, and sort of seeing the necessity of taking state powers. So it's, it's really fascinating how this maps on um, globally this experience of uh, socialist act. Yeah, I mean, so, it's such a similar trajectory everywhere. It's it's interesting, and it, it maps on quite neatly as well too. So I suppose there was there was a period in, in 2010, 2011, 2012, where sort of everyone in the mainstream was saying we were expecting the financial crisis to lead to sort of a resurgence of left-wing politics and how come no one is challenging the neoliberal hegemony when in 2008 and 2009 we thought it must be at its you know end or in crisis or whatever. But I mean, it just took eight years or so for people to get their shit together. Mm-hmm. And now that's happening now, so that's good. It is. It is. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of the things we need to ask ourselves, you know, and this is one of the things I sort of um, I've been harping about recently in the past just couple of weeks. And I'd like to talk more about this and and explore it. And I think, you know, a lot of the more kind of activist oriented socialists sort of have it in their minds that if they, you know, we need to continue building a left by sort of um, proselytizing in the right Mm -hmm. way, engaging in activist work in in the right way. Um, Our organizations need to be incredibly uh, kind of almost in a navel gazing sort of mm. way, um, obsessed with how we're orienting to people in our meetings and how we're talking to one another. These kind of you know obsession with manners and um, and, and the way pe- the words, the language that people use, and and that's not to say that those things aren't important. Mm. I mean, I think you know, rule number one: just don't be a dick, mm. right? <laughs> I think that just carries, uh, you know, get you get you most of the way. Um, not to say that those things aren't important, but I think one thing is that you know it completely misreads how we all got mm. here. And I don't know. I mean, Michael, did, did, did somebody knock on your door and canvas you about socialist politics? Is that how you got involved? Or was it because of these kind of like intensely sort of macro level structural you know, kind of uh, political contradictions of, of, of capitalism? Well, I mean, I suppose, I, I mean, my, my route to socialism is not one that I'd, I'd recommend or, or model as the, <laughs> as the route by which yeah. I hope the majority of people go down, which is sort of by living out and recognizing the inherent flaws in anarchism. I mean, that's that's not the electoral strategy of the Jeremy Corbyn movement to push people through six years of anarchism before deciding that potentially social democracy is, is better. Uh, but, so, I mean, that's how I found yeah, it, which is yeah. probably idiosyncratic. No, I agree with that. I think, you know, that's one of the reasons I think we, we do what we do is I mentioned this off air, off air before we started recording. It's kind of like uh, I, I wandered in the socialist uh, left-wing wilderness for 10 years. Mm. Uh, before I came to my set of politics that I have today, and I, I want to save others the trouble mm. <laughs> of of such a kind of convoluted path. So yeah, you're you're right you're right about that. But I think you know it's just it's, it's interesting how how it's almost like Marx got it right mm. when he was talking about the role of political economic uh, structure in shaping people's consciousness mm. uh, globally. I mean, what's good about so I, I'm. I don't think the Corbyn movement can really make the same mistakes that sort of the anti-austerity movement or the sort of anti-fees movement made in 2010 because it, it's got this constant grounding which is the aim of this movement it's got a bunch of aims but the key aim is to win a majority of the population so that we can take we can enter government and if your aim is to win a majority of the population then you can't tear yourselves apart because of uh, some interpersonal issue or because someone said something that someone else thinks is out of order i mean it's, it's just I think that's it, it's important as a movement to be self-reflective and it's important to try and improve yourself to take on criticisms when and where they emerge. 
But I mean, that's 25%. That's, that's where 25% of your energy should be going. And 75% of your energy should be going to making yourself fucking bigger uh, and getting closer to what is your eventual goal. And I think that was the problem with, well, from, in my experience, those movements in 2010, 2011, et cetera, was that 75% of the time was about how do you be self-reflective as a movement and how do you uh, recognize the different impressions that are being replicated in your movement and only 25% of it was on the goal. And I feel like this switching that ratio was 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 really productive for the UK left, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like going into the state and trying to take take state power has a way of of um, concentrating and focusing one's efforts and aims in such a way that uh, you know the important thing becomes the important. Absolutely, thing, yeah. Not, not a side. I mean, that's that's a, that's an argument I've been making sort of the last few years. Which so lots of people see sort of electoralism as a electoralism is in sort of a focus on winning elections as a necessary evil sort of like ultimately what we want to do is implement uh you know whatever whatever an individual's project is but for me like electoralism the idea of trying to fashion your politics in a sort of iterative way so that it appeals to majority of the population is 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 super productive i mean having to do that via the sort of intermediary institutions structured by capitalism to the mainstream media or corporate sponsorship. I mean, Navarra doesn't take corporate sponsorship, but you know what I mean? So like in a, in a capitalist society, you have to, there are necessary evils one has to come to terms with uh, if one wants to win an election. But, but the actual, the process of trying to win a majority of the population to your politics is, I think, a, in itself, a, a very productive uh, focus for any political movement. Just circling back to something you said a moment ago, I, you, know, you, you know, your Spanish holidays would be a lot more luxurious if you'd start accepting uh, money from Virgin. <laughs> yeah. Wanna... <laughs> I'm not sure how sponsorable we are, to be honest, because I mean, so many controversial things get said on that. It'd be sort of like weekly controversies about Virgin have pulled their money because Aaron said this thing about the poppy appeal. Or... <laughs> I think that could be a poppy. That could be a, a not a particularly secure source of funding for us if we were to rely on sponsorship. I don't know, though. I mean, those those uh, social media blow ups, those, uh, you know, faux crises mm. thing, you know, they're sort of foisted upon you every on a weekly basis. Uh, that can be good for business. you know. Yeah, it's good for it's uh, good for name recognition, isn't it? <laughs> and sometimes they can push the debate forward. Sometimes they can be a complete distraction. It depends. And uh, in a way, you don't have so much control over what blows up and when. Because, I mean, we also do a live show, right? So because right. we do a live show often. You know, we'll just say something off the cuff, which will end up being super controversial. And it's like, oh, we didn't really think about that. Yeah, I, I do. I do cherish the fact that, uh, you know, I, I leave a lot of the uh, ridiculous things I say in the mix at the end of yeah. the day, but I, I can take the worst of them out. I mean, we're not talking about like I'm not throwing I, I don't accidentally let a slur slip out or something ridiculous like that. But I mean, in terms of like when I get a little heated. And I say things that, you know, might be taken out of context. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, you guys, you guys have to leave that yeah, in. All of it's you? in. It's there for posterity. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you get a little uh, set off on poppy gate, you know, you, you mentioned poppy gate and uh, well, maybe not gate. I added that. That's what, that's what we Americans. We do. We do the same. We can call it poppy gate. You do it now as well. Watergate has broken our brains forever. Uh, but, um, Poppy, I hadn't heard that in so long. I mean, this, uh, this stupid woman controversy has now completely displaced oh, yeah. this, the, the space in my brain, uh, that, that Poppygate was once occupied. Um, so talk, tell, tell my listeners majority, like I said, majority United States, uh, based, 
tell our list what what was Poppygate? This because I think this just gives us a little bit of an insight. This is an, it might be a, a good way for us to transition into um, the Corbyn movement and the kind of barrage that they're facing and, and Brexit mm. and all the rest of it. Because give the American public a, a little insight into British shenanigans. What was Poppygate and uh, what was your role in, in there? Well, so Poppygate, well, I mean, every, so Remembrance Day is on the, the 11th of November and every year that has been used as a chance for the mainstream media to attack Jeremy Corbyn. So in the first, mm-hmm. and this was primarily a holiday to commemorate World War One. To commemorate World War One, veterans. Well, it's so it's well, it's obviously then because that's when World War One ended. But it's it memorializes everyone who's died uh, fighting for the British Army uh, from then until now. So there's sort of like a leftist critique mm-hmm. of it that it doesn't uh, memorialize people who were killed by the British Army, for example, or civilians. And also, I mean, it, it glorifies war, um, but that's that's been used as a as an opportunity for there to be a media outrage story every year so the first time it was that he didn't bow low enough um so he just uh that that angle wasn't 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 quite right so that was a sort of that was a really big media story uh i think once maybe he didn't sing the national anthem was that on was that on remembrance day or he's just sort of like opened his mouth and he didn't look like he really meant it this year there was a controversy because yeah, he yeah. wore what i thought was quite a smart anorak but which the media decided wasn't um, proper gear to turn up uh, to the ceremony on on Remembrance Sunday, uh, but this year, yeah, Navarra Media had our sort of controversy of our own. So Aaron does Aaron Bastani, who's one of the co-founders, does does a live show called the Bastani Factor, which I'd recommend your listeners check out. Uh, and he was talking about how the British Legion, which is the charity which sort of set itself up to remember. Uh, veterans or well to remember people who died in war and to look after veterans uh, he was saying they're spending too much of their money basically on pr and not enough money on supporting homeless veterans i mean in, in ways i mean it was a kind of off-the-cuff argument you know um, but we have a and there were periods at which he, i did he call i mean he says it was sort of edited down a little bit so there were parts where he was saying that the the glorification, basically, and the framing of British troops as heroes necessarily. So if, if you die a British soldier, you're a hero. Is mm-hmm. I mean, it obviously invisibilizes the fact that British troops are often sent to kill innocent brown people. Um, I mean, I, I think that, you know, anyone that dies in war should be memorialized. But the idea that they're automatically heroes uh, is, is a very political way of, of presenting really trivializes uh, heroism. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, this we, there's a, a sort of centrist blog that watches our live shows every week and edits edits down anything controversial to sort of like a minute clip, which they sort of share on, on Twitter and try and generate uh, sort of media outrages. But this time it really did because, you know, there was there was a clip of, of Aaron Bastani sort of saying the poppy appeal is racist and the Royal British Legion should be shut down. And this was, it, it got it got brought up in Parliament so there was an opposition question from a Tory MP <laughs> saying, prominent Jeremy Corbyn supporter Aaron Bastani has said the poppy is racist. Do you think this is the case? And the, the shadow defence secretary, Nia Griffiths, uh, who's, who's not a Corbynister, stood up in Parliament and said, I think Aaron Bastani is a disgrace. Uh, it, was, it was a very bizarre um, week in politics. Now tell me, uh, do you think that uh, Bastani's sort of ethnic heritage uh, plays into this a little bit? Because if I'm not mistaken, um, at least based on his surname, uh, he's not uh, 
he's probably not deemed properly British by these uh, Tories, uh, you know, these racist, xenophobic Tories either as well. Do you think that pl- that plays into it? I know I, I feel like Ash probably gets Ash Sarkar, your mm. co-editor, co-host, probably gets quite a bit of shit for mm. that as well. Sort of like low key underlying kind of who the hell do you think mm. you are uh, kind of, uh, you know, to, to denigrate uh, our, our proud British traditions. Mm. Well, I mean, Ash gets, Ash gets probably the most from, you know, like, racist misogynist right-wing trolls online like an extraordinary man um i have a lot of respect for how she deals with it i mean uh, with aaron i think yeah he's he's his dad's iranian so uh, potentially his iranian heritage sort of intensifies the the opposition he 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 comes up against uh, in the media establishment but- so this is the kind of um this is the kind of I just wanted to kind of lay this this story out. I thought it was very interesting. I learned a little bit there. I didn't know the extent to to which you guys had uh, ruffled the feathers of uh, not only Tories but uh, apparently um, right wingers inside yeah. of the Labour Party as well. Uh, but it, it just goes to show the kind of um, the the questions that that you and your team are forcing on the politi- uh, British political scene. I think it's really valuable and important. There there are no parallels on the mm. U.S. left right now, unfortunately. I mean, I know that. It's a different kind of beast. It's a much larger uh, media, you know, media e- ecosystem for sure. I mean, our country is 300 some odd million. It's a little more saturated with kind of the corporate kind of um, influence as well. And so, you know, it's you guys sort of appear, your team sort of appears on mainstream television shows and Channel 4 News and all the rest of it, whereas it's really hard to see in the, in the United States what a, a similar kind of project might look like. Um, I suppose like to the Young Turks and Intercepted, they, they go on the cable news channels. Like Occasionally that. they do. Yeah. I mean, Jank of uh, founder of TYT is uh, a little, a little nutty at times, uh, you know, <laughs> so like, I'm not sure he's the best representative. He, I mean, Jank is like a, a poor man's Paul Mason, mm. you know, and I have a lot of respect for Paul Mason, but, but Jank is fine. You know, he's a little, you talk about idios, uh, idiosyncratic. I mean, he's, pretty far down the line. But with that being said, I do think that the the, the kind of self-styled progressives that have uh, you know been catalyzed in and through that project, such as, you know, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Justice mm. Democrats, which is a, a group of people who are uh, trying to identify people and, and were very instrumental in having the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, even run in the first place, even get her name on the ballot. And so they're doing really, really important work, but um, I'm not sure that that is being projected into mm. the media in the way that you guys have had success over there. And so, you know, another reason I had you on the show is I just want people to start thinking much more seriously about what's mm. possible as a kind of counter hegemonic uh, political media, you know, ecosphere uh, system um, in building that project. You guys must think quite explicitly about about intervening in those ways. Mm. No, definitely. I mean, I suppose in, in a way, there's an extent to which, sort of, actually, the BBC does kind of ignore the left, but but it, it's harder for broadcast media to completely ignore. People from our end of the political spectrum, because someone from our end of the political spectrum is the leader of the opposition. You know, so it's it's because because of Corbyn's position in the Labour Party, it does mean that producers have to look for someone to represent a pro-Corbyn position. And I mean, there there was a real dearth of people who could represent a pro-Corbyn position in the in the British media. Uh, so so to an extent, yeah, there was a, there was a huge, I mean, to put it in in crude terms, gap in the market of people to yeah. It became completely obvious that this this kind of politics was now significant. It was popular in Britain, especially after the general election when Corbyn got forty percent. Um, and so, so that meant there was there was a space, and producers were looking for people to defend to defend that particular position. 
uh, I mean, we we find weirdly so Sky News, which is, uh, I mean, I think Murdoch's selling it now, but it was it was kind of Rupert Murdoch owned, is more progressive in a way than the BBC. They're more open to having sort of alternative left wing voices on. But uh, no, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I have a lot of respect for the Young Turks. I find them quite inspirational because not not so much in terms of I have, my politics hasn't developed by watching watching the Young Turks, but the fact that on YouTube, which you know, everyone always talks about how YouTube is, is dominated by the right and the right on YouTube. The fact that the most successful, the most watched YouTube news and politics show is left wing, I think is is a real asset to the left. I think I think you spelled it out perfectly there. It's kind of like I think TYT uh, isn't the isn't the best. I mean, it might be a good gateway yeah. drug, you know, but I think I think it's much more useful as a, a mainstream supplement to a much more kind of principled uh, socialist, mm. democratic socialist uh, movement. Um, and again, they do really great work. Kyle Kalinske is a, is, a, is a massive celebrity these days. He's one of the most popular guys there. He's only just turned 30, I believe. He's a young guy and has a big following and he's pushing uh, very militant, progressive uh, policies. Um, you know, but again, um, we've talked about this on, on DPS in the past, but, um, you know, I think, you know, when, with the rise, the meteoric rise of Alexandria mm-hmm. Ocasio-Cortez, the media mainstream found itself, um, sort of, uh, desperately seeking anyone to explain to the public what this democratic socialism mm-hmm. word means. And, you know, when they, when they reach to, uh, the sort of Vox sect, um, the Ezra Kleins of the world to explain democratic socialism rather than, you know, the equivalent of uh, Aaron Bastani um, in, in the U.S. Uh, media sphere. Um, you know, you're not going to get you're not going to get the best explanation. Yeah, 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 exactly. You're going to get to a, a, at best a watered down or cynical kind of oppositional perspective of what. what yeah, I mean, Ocasio-Cortez is your moment. Well, I suppose Bernie should have been as well. But where they're sort of like, we want we want someone to help us understand what this is. And so, yes, yeah, it's, it's important right. to get yourself right. out there in that moment. And I think the difference is, you know, is that uh, you, you guys were ready, willing, yeah. and able to to fill that that void, to take advantage of that that uh, m- gap in the market, as you've, I think, rightly put it. Um, whereas the U.S. left has some serious catching up to do. In case, in case there's any um, centrist people on the right of the Labour Party that want to clip that, I'm, I'm not saying that. <laughs> but Navarro Media's commentary <laughs> is is merely a entrepreneurial opportunity because we don't get it's 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 not. Um, lucrative i can say that <laughs> but i mean in terms of someone who's interested in the left getting their ideas out of there out there and sort of creating a hegemonic project obviously you have to take you have to take advantage of opportunities as and when they when they arise and and if if navara had sort of come into its own in 2010 there wouldn't be people inviting sort of our analysts and commentators onto onto the show because it would be perfectly normal for them to be ignoring socialists whereas now they they can't do that so yeah in the united states you need to be ready and waiting giving your phone numbers out so that so that on the major channels when they want to understand what democratic socialism is they have someone uh, ready to to give that argument in a in a persuasive way so they don't have to go to ezra klein that's right that's right yeah anyway uh, to the centrist uh, to the centrist out there i just want to share I, I did see michael at his restaurant at, at brunch this past uh, this weekend at the weekend and uh, i saw avocado on that toast <laughs> i did i love avocado I, on toast i saw avocado on that toast and you know if you'd save that money you could have bought yourself a nice flat in london by now yeah i love avocado on the to- on on toast but it's not the reason i can't afford a house <laughs> 
I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Anyway, all right. <laughs> uh, on to more substantive issues. We've, we, I, I never actually didn't really intend on bringing you on to make a, a real kind of, um, you know, full-throated uh, pitch for um, a socialist media ecosystem in the mm. United States. But, uh, but here we are. 40 some odd minutes in we're talking about it. And I think it's, it's been a really fruitful, important conversation for people to have. Um, I like many others who I think are, are very rooted and grounded in the kind of material moment that we find ourselves in look to the UK for inspiration. I mean, it's a very different political system. Um, it's not all, it's not all, you know, um, <laughs> poppies and rainbows. Mm. Uh, but, um, you know, you guys have your own challenges for sure. As, as I'm often reminded when I have guests on, I mean, it can it can change, it can change quickly though. I mean, as yeah, as consolation. So when, I mean, when I was yeah. living in Spain, I was sort of like looked at Britain, sort of looked at Podemos, looked at sort of like how effective they all were, how they'd been thinking about this for decades, you know, how how all they cared about was communicating to a mass audience. Looking at Britain, thinking like, shit, man, we don't have anything com- that compares to that. You know, they have a political culture here, they have a political scene that just doesn't exist in the UK, and you know, it can make you feel a bit despondent and then all of a sudden a political moment happens and people rise to the challenge so so now sort of like spanish comrades are looking to britain saying like oh we're so jealous of what you've got going on in britain at the moment i was like oh that shit that was that was me three years ago but thinking about you guys so yeah yeah, it's it's a lot about the political opportunity yeah at the at the World Transform Conference, um, there was a session. They're all mostly uh, public now in a podcast. People should look that up. It's available on iTunes. Just search for uh, TWT or uh, the World Transformed. Should find it. Maybe I'll try to link to it in the show notes if I remember. We'll see. And uh, there was a session where they sort of uh, you know flew in these uh, American socialist po- politicians. So Bass Carson Carr, founder of Jacobin and now Tribune, was there, and uh, they had um, former guest of DPS Lee Carter. Uh, state socialist delegate here in my home state of Virginia, mm. uh, former capital of the U.S. Confederacy. It's a wild situation there. And uh, Julia Salazar, who's a DSA member and now a state representative of, in New York. And uh, so somebody else that I'm missing, thinking who was on this panel. I don't know if you if you were at that panel, you're familiar with it. I wasn't at that panel, but I mean, we had Vijay Prashad over from the United yeah, States. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, he, he may have been, uh, well, Becky Bond was around as well. I, I can't remember. So anyway, there's a, there's a, a really interesting, uh, comment, uh, again, a comment, not a question during the, the Q and a, <laughs> but it was, this was very important. And some, a woman stood up and she seemed to be, a, a, a above the age of 50, I would say, based on her sort of style and her tone. And she sort of said, you know, you guys are over here fawning about what we've accomplished here in the UK. But, you know, three years ago, we were in the wilderness. Yeah. And all of a sudden, here we are. So don't think for a second that what you're building in the US can't all of a sudden sort of explode. And you find yourselves in a very similar position that we're in now. Um, so take heart, you know, good good yanks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that was the message. And, and that really resonated with me when I heard yeah. that. Because it's also really easy to sort of make post facto structural explanations for why it couldn't happen here. So, I mean, when I was living in Spain and it's sort of like, oh, they have such a strong political culture here. Neoliberalism didn't tear apart trade unions and sort of social capital to the same degree that it did in Britain. And therefore, you know, for to have a successful hegemonic left wing project, we're going to have to build from the ground up uh, uh, a society that looks like Spain's. And they're like, no, I mean, uh, an opportunity arose and now we're in a very strong position in the UK. So yeah, don't, there's no need for defeatism anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
So take heart, uh, people. You know, we'll see. <laughs> Although I got to get a knot in my stomach every time I think about it. I don't know how you sleep. The stakes are so high in, in British politics right now. I, I don't know how you, you, you get a wink of sleep. I, it would just, it would uh, just gnaw at me 24 uh, seven. Mm. Uh, the kind of stakes that are, that are uh, there, you know, in, in this moment, in the way that, you know, every single action and position really matters all of a sudden. We're used to sort of being able to throw out these positions and these stakes on the left and like, you know, nothing happens like, oh, well, what the fuck, you know, okay. a couple people on Twitter will hate me and block me or troll mm -hmm. me for a few days, but there are no real uh, material stakes. So this is a good way to transition into the remainder of our conversation, which is Brexit. And the mm -hmm. Corbyn moment and the possibility of a labor government in 2019, because mm -hmm. we find ourselves uh, on the eve of 2019. I'm not sure when this show will air. So if uh, it's already 2019, Happy New Year, everyone. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, but talk to me about the prospects of a Corbyn government and you know your initial thoughts on this Brexit debacle and how this is going to impact that process. Yeah, I mean, so we're in a kind of incredible moment in Britain where sort of no one knows what's going to happen next. You know, none of the none of the options seem particularly likely. So, so but one of them's got to happen. So, so at the moment, Theresa May is trying to get through her her Brexit deal through Parliament. A vast majority of Parliament have said they won't vote it through. Some because it's not close enough to the European Union. Some because it's too far away from the European Union. No, because it's too so it's too many too many negatives there uh <laughs> some people because <laughs> it's, it's too hard a brexit some people because it's too soft a brexit some mps because they want a second referendum to overturn brexit so so she's going to struggle to get that deal through parliament it it might happen once she sort of blackmails parliament into doing it when we're a week away from a no deal brexit or something along those lines um or to get through that stalemate she could call a general election or she could call a referendum um, mm -hmm. so i mean mm -hmm. we might have a general election next year who knows um, in terms of how Brexit would would affect that, I mean, the official position of the Labour Party is they want to recognise the result of the referendum, so they don't want to reverse Brexit. I mean, I'm I'm in favour of that position, uh, but they want to go back to the European Union and with different red lines to the Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. so the Conservative Party went to the European Union with their red lines as we want to make our own independent trade deals. We want to end freedom of movement of people within the European Union. Uh, and I mean, at one point they wanted to sort of exercise Britain from the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, although I think they've to some degree given up on that. Um, and they've come back with this, with this deal. And Labour are saying they've got some different red lines. We don't care about independent trade deals, for right. example, because we kind of recognise right. that we're in a stronger position as part of um, the negotiating block that is the the European Union, so we don't have to accept chlorinating chickens or whatever from from your country, um, so, so that we can stand up to the negotiating might of Donald Trump. Uh, and the idea is that Labour will be able to go back to the European Union and, with those different red lines, negotiate a slightly different um, Brexit, which is which is better at protecting jobs and unencumbered by the hard right extremists on the Tory backbenches. I mean, what's most likely is that some way or another, Theresa May will either get this deal through or we'll have a second referendum and either may's deal or remain will will win um right. so so it looks like it won't be labor that is in government when the next part of brexit gets decided which to be honest is is um 
it must be a relief. A relief, yeah. That's the, that's the word I was looking for because I mean it's sort of managing over this period of of political crises is 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 a difficult one if you're trying to hold a coalition together. Yeah, yeah. Leo Panitch was on the show a month and some odd weeks ago. And um, he had just come back from uh, London. Uh, this was uh, the second time after he was at, there for the conference and spoke to a lot of insiders and, and sort of yucked it up with McDonald and some of these other types. Mm. And, uh, you know, he said sort of privately and publicly that, you know, I mean, these the people who are having these conversations without naming names are, uh, are, are, are quite set on the Tories taking the kind of political heat for this, which I think is... Um, makes the attempts of some of the centrists in the Labour Party to force a no-confidence vote renders those efforts quite suspicious. Mm. If the leadership, i.e. the Labour left, are trying to sort of uh, ride this out and see the Tories sort of um, go down with their own ship, why is it that the centrists and even the right-wingers inside the Labour Party are trying to uh, speed up the process? Is this um, a kind of subtle coup against Jeremy Corbyn and his uh, more sort of medium to long game strategy. What's your take on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's that's basically correct. So, I mean, I think that, I mean, what my position is, and I think this is quite um, not, not, I don't have sources to confirm this, but I mean, it, it seems like this is a position that's kind of guiding the Labour front bench, is that our, our project is to reverse neoliberalism in Britain and to, uh, I mean, I, I think the enemy really is at home. So, so, so the enemy, when we're trying to reverse neoliberalism, is 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 in Britain. Britain was at the forefront of sort of introducing neoliberalism to Europe. So I don't particularly see the European Union as as the enemy, and I don't think the Labour front bench do either. Um, at the same time, I don't think the Labour front bench see that the possibility of a successful redistributive socialist government relies on being inside the European Union. So that, so they're basically not willing to expend that much political capital on this particular battle because we see that, yeah, either we remain in the EU or there's some sort of soft Brexit or we have to have a radical transformation of the economy via a hard Brexit, which is, it seems quite unlikely anyway. But, but in any case, we can work with any of those situations to try and introduce a more progressive taxation system to try and build a bunch of council houses and to fund the NHS properly mm. and to have a less interventionist foreign policy. You know, like most of most of our goals are consistent with the possible, the different possible outcomes when it comes to Brexit. So, so the key priority for for the Labour Party over the last three years has been what is what is the best way that we can hold our coalition together because we recognise that there are some people who feel passionately about leave some people who feel passionately about Remain and both of them are integral parts of, of Labour's coalition and and Labour wants to keep them on board and, and to do that it's basically always stayed one one step closer to the EU than, than the Tory party which is which is an honest position as well because I mean it, they I mean many Tory backbenchers and many of the Tory frontbenchers the, the, the Tory government see the EU as sort of an evil in and of itself because it undermines British sovereignty because they see it as as a nationalist project that opposes any sort of multilateral solutions to political and economic problems uh, which right. which which the Labour Party doesn't show so yeah they've, they've basically 
bought their time and taken a very pragmatic view, which is we want a Brexit which causes as little damage to the economy and causes as little damage to working class people as possible. Uh, that means they haven't backed a second referendum because if they back a second referendum, that would mean backing Remain and that would mean taking a side in what has often become a culture war. Labour don't want to start a culture war because they know that they can win a majority on on economic issues and potentially foreign policy issues, but they don't want to set cosmopolitan liberals against, uh, I mean, especially people in, in post-industrial communities who don't share the attachment to the EU that many of Labour's sort of London-based supporters do. Right, right. And, and that's what's dictated their position. And there's some centrists within the Labour Party who want Labour to basically commit to, I mean, what I'd call like a Hillary Clinton coalition, which is to say, fuck the people in, in post-industrial Britain who don't like Brexit. We should be the Liberal Party. And to be the Liberal Party, what we should be doing is throwing everything in to, to the Remain campaign 2.0. You know? and, and the front bench rightly don't want to do that. These have been called the Romaniacs, is that correct? Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, the, yeah. the Romaniacs are so the Romaniacs are like a, a different section of society. So that would be like, there's lots of lawyers with Twitter accounts who are okay. sort of okay. quite allied to the Lib Dems, who are just, you know, like obsessed with the EU, you know, like constantly waving EU flags. So those are two distinct, pro- these are two distinct projects then. So there's the Romaniacs are primarily Lib Dems. The project you just outlined are, are Labourites. What, uh, what, well, there, well, I suppose with labor, with labor centrists, there's often an idea. So, like Chakarumana is their yeah. is their sort of leader, and he doesn't care about anything. So, so the Romaniacs are often sort of like kind of. Uh, I mean, I I often see them as sort of naive, but sort of like proper liberals. You know, people who've, who've who've never been political before because they've never had a reason to concern about politics in their life because they're very comfortable, and now this has sort of challenge their understanding of what britain is and who they are sort of like as a liberal so that, that that's i mean that maps on perfectly with the hashtag resist uh, exactly yeah exactly so, okay. yeah. so there's sort of a, a naivety about it whereas with the the labor right it's much more of a strategic decision they've made which i think you're right is partly to damage jeremy corbyn because they know that actually corbyn's playing a blinder in terms of keeping labor's coalition together but there is some discord within the base who would prefer him to be to be backing Remain. So they're trying to sharpen the contradictions, as it were, between those two elements of of, of Labour's constituency. Mm-hmm. Now that's fascinating. You say you know the the, the, the Labour centrists don't care about anything except power. Perhaps they have exactly, no principles. Yeah. They have no principles and aspirations except for power. I mean, that really maps on to the neoliberals inside of the Democratic Party, where they have no values except for uh, except for power. Exactly. Uh, very, very similar. Yeah. It makes for easy tweets where you can look at you know what their what their think piece said in 2015, what it said in 2016, what it said in 2017, and what it said in 2018. So Chuck Romano, I'm saying, is their, is their leader. In 2016, he said Labour have to stop freedom of movement, even if it means a hard Brexit. In 2017, he's like, we need a second referendum. We need to stay in the EU. Uh, anything anything else is sort of like right wing uh, propaganda and he, he's, he switches his position every six months depending on where he sees an opportunity for self aggrandizement yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's in that in that respect it's interesting with in the absence of uh, a proper lib dem party in the united states you do you find the hashtag resist lawyers um, inside of the democratic party are they lawyers in america as well 
They are lawyers and sort of just members of uh, the PMC, the sort of professional managerial class. Yeah, exactly. Uh, of course, a lot of those people sort of find themselves in the socialist movement as well, which you know has its own uh, kind of uh, results and contradictions. I mean, I love my good. Te- I mean, I, I prefer to see a tech bro, you know, as a DSA member than a you know a, a member of the far right. Uh, but at the same time, it produces a certain kind of. Um, uh, cultural sort of uh, proclivities or something. I'm not mm. sure what to, get, what to call it there, but uh, yeah, and that's interesting. Just trying to kind of map on the experience of what's happening in, in the UK with the US. And I think, I think yes, it's, you know, it's not as different as I think some people might insist upon. Some mm. people sort of overstate the differences of the parliamentary system versus uh, the sort of United, uh, our system over here. But Talk to me a little bit about the feelings on the labor left right now and the socialist left and the democratic socialist left. What's, I mean, again, I mean, I think it's just been so hyper, Brexit has been hyper normalized now. The rise of Jeremy Corbyn seems absolutely inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, what happens after that remains to be seen. We saw a meteoric, meteoric rise of Alexis Tsipras and Syriza in Greece. And now I think, you know, I think you're actually required by a left-wing law to spit after every time you say the word uh, Syriza, right? <laughs> Isn't that a thing? No, 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 I don't have to sort of spit now. I, I, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I find the Syriza thing very interesting because I'm not particularly into betrayal narratives. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, maybe, but that doesn't mean a betrayal narrative is it's never not fitting. I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I, the strongest argument in defense of Syriza is that yes, they had to implement EU enforced austerity, but if they weren't there, then it would be basically a fascist party instituting uh, that, mm. that brand of EU austerity. But yeah, so it's, it's not a desirable situation to be in, in any case. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think one of, one of the things that, the, you know, my podcast is trying to do, and I think it seems that Navarra is pretty hell bent on, on this mission as well is to prepare the international left such that when the Corbyn government or a Sanders government or whomever mm. runs into um, a set of, uh, you know, uh, traps, <laughs> a set of dilemmas. This is what Leo Panitch likes to he came on and said, these are dilemmas. You, they're, they're unavoidable mm. um, that we don't sort of uh, resort to the capitulation thesis. Mm. Um, it's just, it's, it's too easy. It's too lazy. And it doesn't help us understand the, the dilemmas mm. that we will in- inevitably face, uh, once we achieve some, some, uh, modicum of state power. So really important project there, but what, what is, what, what, what are the thoughts and feelings and emotions on the labor left regarding, um, uh, Corbyn government? It seems like momentum from my perspective, um, are they losing steam? Talk to us about your relationship with momentum. Um, they are just, uh, they have a certain kind of focus and they're concentrated in a way that we spoke about earlier on, um, not only sort of supporting, uh, Corbyn's leadership, but, um, furthering the, the project and, and getting more activists or engaged in, 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 in that. And so in that way, they have a kind of focus that I am intensely jealous of mm. from, my, from my view over here in the U S. Um, talk to us about momentum in that respect. Momentum is. So I was I was involved in that from when it was was first founded, and the f- the first year of momentum was was a real. I mean, it, there was some exciting moments, but in many ways, it's a real shit show. I mean, but basically because there there was a big disagreement about what it would be. So for some people, they wanted it to be a site of political contestation to the left of the Labour Party. So they wanted a sort of democratic organisation where you'd fight the same factional battles that you fight in the Labour Party, but in this organisation to to the left. Uh, so it'd be a sort of 
para party, as it were. Um, I was part of the, I suppose, faction within Momentum that argued against that because I thought there's already enough meetings in terms of the Labour Party for us to replicate all of those structures. It also gave, uh, in my opinion, uh, undeserved influence to sort of like Trotskyist factions basically because they had right. they, they they liked attending meetings and many of them have been expelled from the Labour Party so they didn't have Labour Party means to turn up to. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I saw this as a huge drain of energy um, on the Labour left. In that sense, it was more of the same, right? Because at that time you'd had this intense proliferation of socialist socialist uh, organizations, projects, yeah, networks exactly. that emerged after the, the failure of the SWP. You know, yeah. the SWP falls apart and because the ISN sort of comes about and all these other groups were trying to replicate that structure. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a really important maneuver on the parts of you know, yourself and the rest of Momentum to turn away from that kind of more of the same uh, mm. approach. But that was also then st- uh, kind of, I'm sure by your opposition, that was um, characterized as an anti-democratic uh, putsch, if you will. To, yeah. To sort of undermine the quote democracy this kind of simple simplistic notion of democracy that would have been had in the process of those meetings and those sort of member driven uh, initiatives what, what what was your stance there well i mean it was i mean i call it the momentum coup i backed the momentum coup <laughs> there, 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 there was an organization which had uh, some some democratic structures that were created i mean i i i basically a very unattractive organization had been created um, and it had been created dangerously with sort of the prior endorsement of Jeremy Corbyn, who at that point was the leader of the Labour Party. So if it went down sort of the route of um, the dramas and sort of the embarrassments that many left-wing organisations over the past five years had had succumbed to, that would be a, a drag on the movement. Right? And so so my my position was kind of with, after a year, what we've done is we've sort of created this parallel party, which is sucking in everyone's energy is fighting sort of factional battles within the left instead of fighting the factional battles that matter within the Labour Party. And so we need some kind of, or there needs to be some kind of manoeuvre that allows momentum to become the kind of organisation that that it's much more useful to have, which is one that supports left-wing activists within the Labour Party, as opposed to one which demands the time of left-wing Labour activists to fight a factional struggle within this sort of separate organisation. Um, and and that was basically done via sort of quasi democratic moments. I sort of like there was there was kind of like an internet referendum on do you want the organisation to look like how it's currently looking or do you want it to look like uh, more a more where democracy happens online basically in a more top down organisation which is intended to facilitate action within the Labour Party as opposed to replicate it. Um, but but that did subvert what was the constitution of momentum at, at that time, which is why I'm happy to call it a coup. But I mean, the organization was only a year old. Um, and I feel like you, you can't be too, what's the word, precious about these things. Obviously, I, th- I think sort of in terms of the Labour Party, that there is a an inherent value to conforming to Labour Party rules. So so if there was, I'd never support someone subverting Labour Party democracy Labour Party's democratic procedures to uh, implement a policy or a decision I happen to like, because I think as as principled socialists, we have to support that within the Labour Party. But, but considering 
momentum was sort of developed in a real, you know, hodgepodge, people sort of working with their eyes closed. You know, it was, it was, it was kind of an experiment. I didn't think that we should treat the cobbled together constitution as, as too. As a, as, as a sort of sacred, permanent yeah, process sacred that thing. can never be revisited and yeah. rediscussed, right? Yeah. I think if a constitution hasn't lasted more than six months, I mean, you can probably yeah. uh, subvert it without losing any any night's sleep. And and what's interesting, there was there was no real kickback. So there was big kickback for a couple of weeks, um, but people tried to set up a sort of like, you know, independent momentum faction, and basically it, it collapsed within a few months because the kind of people whose politics the original structures benefited were not people whose politics many people found particularly attractive. So people who really like attending meetings, quite minoritarian politics. They like attending meetings and they also happen to be surprise, surprise, uh, sort of elite leaders in, in those local uh, sort of things. So it's sort of like uh, attempts to maintain um, some kind of status within the organization. Um, well, yeah, obviously I mean, those, those meetings get smaller and smaller because who has time to go to this, this extra right. meeting and then you end up with sort of. Their hold on, their, then their grasp on power becomes more and more solid, right? In exactly. And that's what where, was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think, you know, this is, this is a really incredibly important thing. I mean, Max Shanley came on the show um, earlier uh, last year and mentioned that uh, he was in the, I think he was sitting at the, in a, at a pub somewhere where uh, John, he and John Landsman sort of wrote out the constitution or what have you, the foundational document of momentum on the back of a, of a, of a pub napkin, you know? And so this is, this is the document that's supposed to be sacred for all times and places and and unassailable, you know, it's kind of like, I think, you know, I mean, I think this is a lesson that we should probably learn in the, well, certainly learn, I would argue in in the U S with respect to our left and these kind of like these, these organizations that are only a year and a half, two years in the making right now, such as say DSA, it's kind Mm. of re reconstituted DSA that's not like the old DSA in any stretch of the imagination. And honestly, not many people can put their finger on exactly what it is and what it's for right now. Mm. Um, broadly speaking, socialism of some kind, right? How we get there and it's hotly contested and there's almost no uniformity there. Mm. Um, it doesn't even operate in, I mean, I, I'll just go out and let and say it. I mean, I, I know the, the, the personnel and the people on the national political committee. And I mean, there's absolutely no unity of action there to the point where I'm not quite sure that the national leadership of DSA are convinced that they're all actually in the same organization. Mm. Um, it's, it's just a loose federation of people who have, I, I would say sort of uh, vastly in some instances, divergent um, strategic orientations, understanding of what it means to be a socialist and what it means to do socialist politics and what's, um, what we're aiming for in the first place. And so to suggest that we can't revisit, um, these sort of accidental happenstance, uh, organizational formations that we find ourselves with in, in only just a year or two's time is just, uh, it's quite silly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I might, uh, I'll suggest a parallel to American politics and see if you think it makes sense, which is, I mean, what momentum was becoming is what it seems like the DSA has become, which is sort of like a a national organization based on sort of delegate structures, which sort of, because of its distance from sort of like projects to take power ends up getting further and like ends up traveling in a sort of minoritarian direction, as it were. Um, and I feel like momentum as it currently exists potentially looks a bit like Justice Democrats, which is sort hmm. of like more ad hoc, sort of semi-professional organization, which 
which supports, whose primary function is to support candidates within the Democratic Party. But I mean, I don't know enough about Justice Democrats to know if that well the difference there is very clear to me which is that you have a labor party we don't yeah <laughs> and you know i mean my, my harshest critics will bite back and say the democratic party is where the social movements go to die the democratic party is the graveyard of social movements and i would i would push back as i've had adam hilton on the show a, a scholar on democratic you know party and, and socialism and he sort of would suggest otherwise to say that because of our lack of a labor party the democratic party requires social media uh, social uh, movements they need to incorporate incorporate mm. them for their sort of um, you know, their grassroots uh, electoral strength mm. and, and as such it's it's just it's it's quite the opposite of what my critics uh, uh, you know uh, will argue it's 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 that actually this the Democratic Party is a shell and it's nothing without the social movement so we actually have perhaps even more influence potentially on the trajectories of that party um, than we might otherwise if it was this kind of um, sort of uh, hyper-vibarian, bureaucratized uh, social democratic party that had been around for 120 some odd years. Um, but that's not to suggest that, you know, the corporate the corporate funding models and all the rest of it aren't uh, incredibly high hurdles to get over. Mm. Uh, but no, but that's this, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think your your suggestion is too far off off the mark there. And I think it's it's one that we need to start thinking about much more seriously. How do we create socialists and do the work of what an organization like DSA does, education, um, you know, the, the sort of taking people through the school of hard knocks. You have to mm. learn by doing, you know, canvassing, uh, talking, selling your ideas to the public, having reading groups, um, engaging in direct action. Um, how do you produce socialists while not devolving into these kind of um uh, hyper, you know, uh, regional localized kind of, um, high kind of click driven political networks. Yeah. Right. I mean, I suppose one thing is, is like a division of labor within organizations and within movements. So, I mean, I think one problem that the, the left has, has had, and I think which was part of the, some of the ideas that went into momentum originally, which were, was becoming quite dysfunctional, is for the organisation basically to do everything, for it to have political positions, for it to sort of like be the movement of movements and sort of suck in all these social movements, and to win uh, factional battles or to help win factional battles within the Labour Party and to help Labour win general elections. And it's those all those different functions ended up pulling apart from each other. And so at the moment, the, the functions it has are basically winning factional patterns within the Labour Party and helping the Labour Party to to win, which, which doesn't mean that we don't need other people or, or ourselves with, with different hats on sort of taking part in, in grassroots social movements. But it's, that's, that's not actually Momentum's job, because if, if one organisation tries to do everything, then it'll end up just doing all of them badly, um, which was the direction Momentum was going in before it well before what what i'm calling the momentum coup yeah 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 i think that's absolutely crucial we don't we need to start seeing uh the socialist left as a as an ecosystem yeah exactly i, I like the diversity of tactics line it's this idea that's sort of like it's you know what I, I do i make a a, a left-wing podcast that i want to be you know to reach a wide audience but also speak to to left-wing people where debates can be hashed out 
that's you know that's that's just one thing that someone on the left can do so it's sort of so I, I what that often leads me to is when people say oh your your project is limited in this way i'm sort of like well of course it's limited every good is limited yeah it's good, good. that's because we do one Go do something do well. that rounds out uh you know my limitations yeah exactly if you, if you think that this is not being done on the left that like maybe there's maybe another organization to do it, or maybe another organization is needed to do it you know not we shouldn't try and do all the things basically is what i'm saying it's kind of a simple point but but yeah. something that i think wasn't understood fully by by the british left in my experience over the last 10 years yeah no i think that's absolutely right um one of the things that um i spoke i spoke about with vivek chibber in my most recent podcast with him here and i realize now i'm speaking a little bit out of turn because i'm not exactly sure if this episode will air before vivek chibber <laughs> or uh if this will air after vivek chibber so uh dear listener if you have not heard my episode with vivek chibber it's coming next week and it's fucking awesome so you're in for a real treat but anyway we have Vivek and I discussed, you know, the fact that I think one of the main central differences between the UK and the US is that we don't have a Labour Party and we don't have a a, a sort of a, as as a site of struggle. Right. You have the Labour Party as a site of struggle for the Labour left to, to, to sort of uh, win a so- socialist um, you know, hegemony inside of that party. It's, it's also important that. to note that that was so that the Labour Party as a site of struggle was was the site of defeat after defeat after defeat for sort of 50 <laughs> years so so it's not I mean, and that's true it, it was a losing battle as well for decades because the bureaucracy was too strong and the left would get snuffed snuffed out uh, yeah, so there's a quite a lot of fatalism uh or you know blocking that argument from taking off mm. i would i would i would suspect right again again yeah again maybe i'm being a little bit too um too rose um, or too rosy eyed here i don't know but and why you should take hope in the u.s is actually the the thing that allowed the left a breakthrough in the labor party was a party reform which made the labor party more like the democratic party so so we we switched it's the collins review for for any geeks listening in in 2013 we switched from the leader of the labor party being elected by one third trade unions one third mps and one third members to being elected one member one vote by members and registered supporters so you pay three pound and you could have voted for the leader so there were some people on the left who opposed this because they thought it would disempower the unions and would create sort of atomized u.s style um sort of uh, basically undermine the the status of the party as as one which which builds up a cadre so it becomes much more passive but it was actually that reform which allowed um, Jeremy Corbyn to get through a, a character like him would would never have won under the old system. So and and that system is a lot like yours. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a really good breakdown of that process under Ed Miliband. That reform uh, was on uh, one of one of the podcasts in, under the Navarra umbrella. Mm. Um, all the best, all the best cast with uh, Max Shanley and Matt Zarb Cousins. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, people should look that. People should yeah, look listen up to that Leo's. podcast. That's a great one. Uh, it's a really great episode with Leo where he breaks down that reform and how it kind of backfired. They thought that only the crazies, um, you know, only the crazies show up to meetings and participate in direct democracy, but uh, it opened the door for much more robust kind of democratic input in the party structures. Um, but but what I was suggesting before is that it's almost kind of like DSA is a party organization without a proper party. Mm. Um, and, and, and as such, it, it's, uh, doing exactly what you, you suggested momentum was trying to do, which is trying to do everything mm. instead of acknowledging and accepting a certain kind of division of labor. 
Um, but that's no fault of DSAs that there isn't a robust uh, you know, labor party, um, that we have a, a long road to travel to, to making the Democratic Party. I mean, we're going to need a tremendous electoral realignment. Uh, but that's not unprecedented. That mm-hmm. happened um, after the American Civil War. It happened uh, in, in the midst of the New Deal in the 1930s through, through 1940s and 50s, where you saw a tremendous amount of uh, Southern racist uh, white supremacists in, in, in the Democratic Party leave, these Dixiecrats, as they were called. And uh, the Democratic Party was reoriented, at least, you know, uh, on a surface level as a kind of the party of social justice, the party of civil rights. And so the point being is we've seen this before. It's not impossible. It's not impossible that we could sort of um, throw the neoliberals out of party. Uh, but uh, but yeah, these parallels are really, really uh, interesting. Let's let's wrap up the show with just a, a quick a, a series of questions just to kind of get your thoughts and feelings on on this. Um, it's my understanding that Theresa May, in in light of winning the confidence vote in her party by uh, a margin about what 15 percent, she she won that. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my understanding that she is now relatively bulletproof uh, unless she resigns uh, for the next twelve months. Is that correct? Yeah. So she she can't be brought down by the Conservative Party for the next twelve months. Okay. So it would have to be a, a no confidence vote in, in part. We'd have to see a, an election. Yeah, the only way she'd go is a no confidence vote in Parliament, uh, or or she resigns. So two a, a series two two uh, questions back to back here. Number one, will she survive uh, uh, twenty nineteen? Will she resign? Will her party be in such disarray? Will she walk away from the wreckage in a similar way that David Cameron uh, had, had done? Uh, what, what do you think are the prospects inside the Tory party right now? Well, so I mean, one one possible scenario and one which I think many many conservatives will be hoping for is for May to take the hit of this fairly unpopular deal uh, to sort of marginally sort of sneak that through Parliament by sort of threatening people with a no-deal scenario, sort of saying either vote for my deal or there'll be economic catastrophe in two weeks. So she, she takes that hit and then there's sort of like a managed succession. So she then, you know, resigns a couple of months later and the Tories are allowed to elect a new fresh-faced leader who doesn't have all the baggage that she does. Um, so for, for the Conservatives, that's probably the best case scenario. Um, whether that would happen, I'm I'm not sure. Theresa May often, there's been many a moment where people have assumed that she can't last more than three months and she, she clings on. So she, she might well cling on for a lot longer. We, we just really don't know, basically. Is she going to dance her way out of this uh, particular crisis as she has done in the past? Yeah, I don't think her dancing skills are quite... I don't, I don't think she's nimble enough uh, to get through this. this oh, I don't know. I saw her cut some rug at the party conference. I saw her cut some rug. Uh, the part. I'll, I'll never be able to listen to ABBA in the same way. Yeah. I mean, Dancing Queen is a hell of a song. I don't care who you are. Fernando's better. But uh, yeah, what's your favorite ABBA song? Next question number two. Favorite uh, ABBA song? I mean... I, I feel bad saying it now because she's ruined it, but I think Dancing Queen probably is the best ever song. You think so? Yeah, I like it. I mean, it's certainly the most iconic. I think Fernando has the whole like kind of, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary. Uh, it's nice. Uh, I mean, I, I think, I believe actually Abba were fascists, is that, if, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Is that true? I, I've, I've heard that they supported uh, some pretty uh, horrific, uh, at least right-wing nationalist uh, projects. Oh, shit. That's a shame. 
if I'm not mistaken. But we're still, we can still like it. I'll, I'll look it up and, and delete them from my Spotify, true. Yeah, well, you have to purify yourself. You know? You're not <laughs> allowed to bob your head along uh, when De- Dancing Queen comes on. Okay, let's see. Next question. Will we see a labor government in 2019? And if so, under what circumstances? Yeah. Um, so it's possible. I, I mean, one option. So one option is, is the Tories think that once they pass the deal and get a new leader, uh, this is their best chance of winning an election in the next five years. They, I mean, they don't, they don't have a a majority in Parliament, they're relying on the votes of the DUP, which is the, the Northern Irish uh, Unionist Party. They'll make it quite difficult to negotiate the final deal. So the, 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 whoever's leader after this deal gets passed then has two years to negotiate what's going to be the final deal. This is just the transition one. Do you think the border, do you think the Irish border is going to really trip them up there, the DUP, that they're just not going to be able to go along with what uh, the, their Tory um, you know, co- coalition members are offering? Well, it depends. So, so the Irish border issue is because uh, to to maintain a soft Irish border between Northern and, and the Republic of Ireland, you need to basic you need Northern Ireland basically to be in the single market. And so, either that means Northern Ireland has a different uh, status to to the rest of of the UK uh, because it would be in the single market, and the rest of the UK wouldn't. Or um, the whole of the UK stays in the single market. So, so one option is is whoever is the next leader of the Tory party manages to win the rest of the Tory party over to staying in the single market, which is sort of anathema to to the hard Brexiteers on the backbenches. Or, or they make yeah what's called a, a border down the Irish Sea. So Northern Ireland stays in the single market, the rest of the UK doesn't. And for them to achieve that situation, they they'd need to not rely on the votes of the DUP because the DUP who are unionists whose who's raison d'etre is to sort of say Northern Ireland is is a proper part of of the United Kingdom. They'll veto anything that has a different status for Northern Ireland as the rest of the UK. So either the Conservatives will have to have persuaded some of their backbenchers to support single market membership, or they'll have to have ended their reliance on the DUP. That's an, that's an uphill battle either way. I mean, that's a bomb sort of hidden in the uh, in the mess for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Off. yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, what was the question? So, of why you might have a yeah. General... Apologies. Uh, these these are you know I always ha- I always have these questions and I'm like, we're going to get through them really quickly and we, <laughs> it only takes ten or fifteen minutes. Uh, well, we're getting through it. Uh, thanks for your patience, listener and Michael alike. Uh, will there be a Labour government in 2018? And if so, under what circumstances? Oh yeah, so so that you could have sort of some Tory hubris. They sort of say the way we get a, a proper majority, so we're not reliant on the on the DUP, is we have a general election. In that case, I think the Labour Party would be in quite a good position to win it. Um, but that would that would require the Conservatives to walk into into a really risky situation for themselves, and they're generally quite risk averse as a party. So I'm, I'm not I'm not sure if that would happen. the The other option would be if um, May manages to sneak her deal through Parliament, the DUP sort of say because this would be the deal where Northern Ireland has a different status to the rest of the UK because it would remain in the single market, um, and then parliament would win a vote of no confidence against the government because that would be all the opposition parties aligned against the tories and, and they'd lose that so that that could also generate a general election um, and labor would be even more likely to win that one because obviously the the government would have collapsed in a fairly chaotic and embarrassing way 
Yeah, right. All right. Best hyphenated, uh, best politician in Britain right now with a hyphenated surname. Jacob Rees-Mogg or Lloyd Russell Moyle? Oh, Lloyd Russell Moyle. He's a friend of mine. Very young. Yeah. Oh, you know Lloyd. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So tell tell uh, tell the, our listeners here in the U.S. why Lloyd uh, recently received some uh, some international media attention. Actually, well, that kept, so so you're talking about him stealing the mace. He was stealing actually, the mace. He was actually <laughs> in the news a, a week previously for um, okay a more uh, unambiguously admirable reason, which was he was uh, he he came out as HIV positive. In yes, yeah, I did. I did but, uh, hear that, but I didn't. Get, I didn't catch a name. So yeah, so that was Lloyd Russell Moore. So, so yeah, that, so he's a he's a slightly more obscure uh, Labour Party MP, at least as an outside onlooker as I am. Um, in your, you know, yeah, he's brand new. He he won in a constituency which no yeah. one thought Labour could win as well. In some I, I do remember that. Yes, okay, that I, but again, like I said, the name just didn't stick. Yeah. I didn't really research the man until until uh the mace incident so uh that's very laudable i don't mean mean to co- cover over a serious uh serious uh <laughs> no, laudable so media i got a silly one the mace incident was very bizarre i only learned about the existence of a mace when he tried to steal it from parliament so so parliament being is that right so you're so i'm right there with you then so i'm not to, i'm not so far off base yeah, that the i whole, didn't realize the, I, I always my advice to to most people when it comes to british politics is ignore whatever goes on in parliament i also think that's that's what the Labour Party should do because, yeah. or like say Ed Miliband was quite good at sort of parliamentary maneuvering, but no one gives a shit what happens in that weird ass building. I mean, yeah, how that the goes, traditions yeah. there are from a different century, and you know they call each other right honourable member for whatever you know, like the whole thing's a joke. But anyway, apparently, if you there's a mace, which is yeah, I don't even know how to describe a mace. It's like it's a bit like a staff, isn't it? Like that's yeah, a you know ceremonial staff or some yeah, sort. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm, no, I'm not sure. I, I think it's meant to be carried rather than sort of walked with. I think that's that's the yeah that's a conceptual distinction between uh, a staff. So and you mace. walk with a staff. So the pope the pope you know walks into uh, you know uh, the cathedral on Christmas Eve with his staff, but he's using it to walk with. Mm. A mace wouldn't touch the ground. You would carry it, I suppose. It was Ga- Gandalf was the. Gandalf had a, sta- a staff. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so a mace, big, big <laughs> ceremonial stick. Anyway, and yeah. I think, I mean, maybe you know this better than me. Now you've researched this particular political moment. But if you if you remove this the this mace from the the Commons chamber, no one's allowed to vote on anything. So let me yank, y- let me yank explain. Yeah, yeah. I'll yank explain British politics for you. So for my research, so in in uh, the Sergeant at Arms of the. Uh, in the House of Commons, sort of brings this mace in, and now the mace, as I'm sure you do, you do know, uh, represents the authority and the legitimacy of the Queen. Oh no, that crown. rings a bell. Yeah, you can't you can't just assume that because I'm British, I'm an expert in all of these things. Anyone who's read the Wikipedia page on Parliament <laughs> is is going to have a better idea of these bizarre traditions. And, well, it's so and ridiculous. It's just yeah, completely non non uh, relatable to our our, our cultural political. But sorry, today. I'm interrupting. You 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 tell. No, me that's quite all right. So you know, as most would know, there's sort of like a limited monarchy. You know, the system that you have there is ridiculous, absurd kind of uh, ceremonial role that the monarch has. Now, it's still there. It's still important, as you know. Like the queen has limited veto powers, although she doesn't exercise them. Although I wish she would, right? Uh, you know, like margarine would be banned overnight. Open-toed shoes would be out. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. 
Um, anyway, so uh, this this mace represents this, this ceremonial authority and legitimacy of the queen in Parliament because prior to uh, the various kind of constitutional reforms and limitations, like I presume the monarch could just stroll into Parliament, do do it whatever the fuck he or she wanted um, in some you know respect. Mm. But but the mace the mace is still there as a representation of, of power. You take the mace out of the building, out of the room. And there's no longer um, it's no longer a legitimate uh, recognized political body. And so by your your uh, by old mate Lloyd Russell Moyle uh, pulling the the mace out of there was trying to demonstrate that the Tory party um, had lost uh, legitimacy in, in terms of like being able to control the proceedings which were underway. And tell us a little bit about what what uh, um, the shenanigans that. Uh, Theresa May was attempting on on the floor that day. Thank you for helping me there and filling in the the, the ceremonial history. Uh, I am yeah, a little little yank explaining thanks lost. to uh, Wikipedia. Um, so so why what what had happened that day in Parliament was uh, Theresa May had announced, I mean, a month earlier that she was going to take her withdrawal agreement to Parliament. It had been clear for a while that it was going to lose, but uh, she was. This, this is the withdrawal agreement which the hard right of the Tory party are against because it's it's not hard enough for Brexit. It gives too much power to the European Union and the Labour front bench are against it because it doesn't sufficiently protect workers' rights, etc., etc. So anyway, this wasn't going to pass. Theresa May had said there would be a debate on it. Parliament had already debated for three days, actually, and they were due to debate. They were due to vote on it the next day. And the day before they were due to vote on it, after this three days of debate, she withdraws it. With no notice, so actually she's had cabinet ministers who were going out on radio that morning saying, "No, this absolutely will be voted on. It's in the national interest for it to be voted on." Her spokesperson, I think, said at about eleven p.m. that this would be not eleven eleven a.m. that morning that this would be voted on, and then at half eleven, half an hour later, they say, "Actually, no, we're withdrawing it. There shall be no vote." Um, so all the MPs are outraged because they've wasted three days debating it. But basically, she seems to be treating Parliament with with disdain by withdrawing it at such late notice because she knew the defeat would be so large. News came out afterwards, which I think created, which was potentially one of the reasons why they launched a vote of no confidence in her, that she told European leaders 24 hours earlier that she was going to withdraw this vote. And she didn't tell her cabinet members, so her closest allies, until half an hour before she did it. So, so she pissed off a lot of people, basically. Yeah. By doing it in such yeah. a, an unannounced way, yeah, sort of jerking around the parliament, which is why uh, your your mate Lloyd Russell Moyle, rookie MP for the Labour Party, yeah. uh, tried to take the mace. Yeah, uh, very very bold maneuver there. Uh, wish that wish that man a, uh, a a long and prosperous political career. So, best hyphenated surname: Lloyd Russell Moyle or Jacob Rees Mogg? Yeah, Lloyd Russell Moyle, hundred percent. Hands down, that, that was a, that was an easy one. Although, yeah, yeah, leads yeah. us to our next question. I mean, you gave me a really like one of the best MPs versus like, <laughs> one of the worst. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you well, you, there, there you go. I mean, I left it open in it because it's, 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 you know, it's imagine yourself. Uh, this is a, we're in. Uh, you're being analyzed by a, a psycho. Jacob uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg has six, I think, six children, and he's he very proudly says that he's never changed a nappy. <laughs> and the first constituency well, he stood only in was a peasant in, would do such a thing was in Scotland, and he drove around in his Bentley. Uh, driven by his butler getting out occasionally to talk to the 
talk to the peasants. He didn't. He didn't yeah. win that election. So there. So there you have it. I just asked best surname. I didn't ask best politician. Oh, best you surname. have inserted. You've made Boston your own Royal criteria, which you're free to do. So it's your question. You can answer it however you'd like. To be honest, actually, your surnames go. I think Reese Mogg is probably a bit more memorable than Russell Moyles, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. It rolls off the tongue a little bit better. Things around. I won't tell Lloyd. Lloyd, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you're you're by far the better politician. So relatedly. Will Mogmentum take off in opposition to Tory uh, to Theresa May's leadership in the Tory Party in 2019? Uh, no, I doubt it. I mean, it's interesting. There's been a lot of talk recently about the potential for a sort of insurgency within within the Tory Party in a similar vein to which there was an insurgency in the Labour Party to elect someone who wasn't particularly supported by by the party establishment. Um, I mean, the, the problem for Jacob Rees-Mogg is that to be just to stand as a leader of the Tories, you have to win uh, the support of lots of Tory MPs because they they choose the shortlist which goes to the members. So they only send mm. two names to the members to vote who they want to be leader. So so they'd probably block Jacob Rees-Mogg um, from the final ballot because they don't think he'd uh, sort of improve the Tories' fortunes amongst the general public because he's such a a weirdo and his politics are quite extreme. I mean, people said the same thing about Jeremy Corbyn, to be honest. But I, mean, I was going to say they need some party reforms there. Yeah, I mean, Mog, he needs to become a populist of a sort. Uh, who knows how Jacob that would be the day be. that Jacob Rees Mogg starts championing democracy and populism. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't find him a particularly persuasive speaker, to be honest. I don't, I don't think he's got the people's touch in the same way that. Um, Donald Trump does, you know, however. He a, kicks a, up my a, gag reflex every time he opens his mouth. What, I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like, just want to like, really, sort of vomit. Really strange posh boy. Oh, Jesus. I, I, don't, no. I mean, the, the, a, a momentum movement hasn't, hasn't started. I mean, conservatives don't have any support among young people. Mm. Uh, so, so, I mean, the person who's, who's created more of a grassroots movement is um, Tommy Robinson, real name, Stephen Yaxley right. Lehman. So whether there'll be a resurgence of sort of like the far, far right um, is is an open question. I think that's more likely than a momentum. But yeah, yeah, uh, for sure, it's very, very frightening, uh, very concerning the way to see uh, the, that growth. We need a whole uh, new episode to, to discuss that. Mm. So we, we won't, I won't, I won't keep you on the question of the rise of the far right in, in the UK, um, although it's perhaps conspicuous uh, in its absence. I think maybe some of my critics would be right in saying like, why the fuck didn't you talk about the fascists? But uh, in any case, we're going to end on this question instead. Yep. Go on. Uh, that, we'll leave that for another day. What to do with the anti-Corbyn wreckers inside the labor party, yep. both today and in the presence of an actual Corbyn led labor government. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, so if there is a, a Corbyn led Labour government soon, uh, they will be its biggest weakness. I mean, mm. so if you think about with with Syriza, for example, that was a leftist party, and when they were put under pressure uh, from from the European establishment, they, I mean, capitulated. I mean, it's probably fair to say they did in that in that situation. Um, yeah, but it is possible to capitulate. Was, we but, should say that. Yeah, it, like, but, but people that, do, that is a thing that people do. It's just not uh, the thing that we should always turn to. You yeah, know, exactly. Lazily. So we shouldn't assume capitulation, but in that, in that situation, yeah. quite likely. But that was with uh, a, a parliamentary party made up of leftists. You know, so so it's hard enough if your parliamentary party is made up with 
of leftists to sort of stand your ground against all the hostile forces that will be lined up against your government. In in the UK, we've got a, a parliamentary party who who have more in common with Wolfgang Schäuble to to you know go with that analysis than they do with Jeremy Corbyn. So so the moment there is any uh, sort of structural opposition to Jeremy Corbyn, they'll they'll side they'll side with whoever's trying to bring him down. So I think it would be quite difficult for a Labour government to get through um, any of Corbyn's most most or to to implement any of Corbyn's most radical proposals, and most importantly, to survive a crisis. And a crisis would be quite likely. So I, I do think we need to um, remove many of them from from the parliamentary party. I mean, I always try and frame it less in terms of we need to get rid of them and more we need to get all the new talent in our movement into parliament because there's yeah. it, it's ridiculous that you've got jeremy corbyn john mcdonald diane abbott and sort of like 10 15 other mps and then the other 200 basically just do nothing you know because yeah. they, they sit on the benches they're not particularly interested in getting power some of them say like 20 30 40 of them are spending their you know, every waking hour trying to bring down um, Jeremy Corbyn and also not only bring down Jeremy Corbyn, but try to sort of like undermine the chances of any electoral victory because they think that if Jeremy Corbyn doesn't win the next general election, then his days will be numbered. Um, so these are people who who are just wreckers. There's, there's, there's no other way to describe them. And then there's a sort of 150 MPs, sort of probably the majority who since the general election where we did quite well have sort of decided, oh, they'll stay quiet so long as they can keep their jobs. They're not particularly ideological, but they're the ones who, when when there's a crisis, will will bail basically. Um, so, luckily, uh, at the Labour Party conference last year, it was made easier to challenge an incumbent Labour MP um, by grassroots activists. So maybe we will get some new blood in Parliament and replace some of the most obnoxious uh, of the centrist MPs. But yeah, I mean they are. They have a lot of institutional power just in their in their position as MPs, and that is a real a real challenge to the movement. But they haven't. The real wreckers among them have been trying for a year now to create energy for a breakaway party, um, because they sort of have assumed that there must be a centrist majority of the public who are just screaming out for the politics of the yeah. status quo, um, and that evidently isn't the case and labor is still at 40 percent of the polls um the tories are still at 40 percent right. in the polls there, there the lib dems seem, have lost uh, the lib dems are on six percent so there doesn't seem to be a, a, a big grassroots demand for for a new centrist politics so so in that sense they're very isolated from from society but they've got obviously lots of media contacts and lots of structural power just in in terms of having those seats in parliament all right last last final question We've been way too serious this entire hour and a half episode. <laughs> Mary fuck kill. Chaka Amuna, J.K. Rowling, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Go. Um, uh, I didn't make it easy. You didn't make it easy. <laughs> I uh, I'm going to, well, I'll marry J.K. Rowling because she's, I think, the richest. That's the easy one. Yeah. So yeah. I think that there's some personal gain to be made there. Yeah. Um. I'd fuck Chucker. I'd fuck Chucker because I don't. I'm not sure it would be physically possible to fuck Jacob Rees. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, how would that? How well, would that had, be? I don't know if there's had, enough Viagra in the world. He's had six kids, and he's actually not that old. He's he's in his forties. 
Yeah, he's so repulsive yeah. as um, a human. As a anyway, yeah, I don't I, know if I, there's I, enough like Cialis and Viagra. I'd, in the I'd world. marry JK for, for the money. I'd yeah. probably fuck Chucker because. It's a story to tell, at least. Yeah. He's not a bad-looking guy. Not yeah. a bad-looking guy. I mean, all in all, he's just a scumbag, you know, laborite. Yeah, he's he's a sort of. Yeah. As far as as far as labor the labor right goes, he's a scumbag. Like there are worse humans. I mean, he's by a far, stupid right? walking like, ego, but I mean, in in ways, that's almost. There you go. Even more, yeah, even more that, attractive. That for, can for often be. Uh, yeah. That's that big dick energy. I mean, he right? doesn't really have. Yeah. I mean, maybe he does have. He no, doesn't, he doesn't. Well, he doesn't. For a technocrat, he's really for a trying to have big dick, big dick energy, which I suppose is, is something. I don't think he's quite pulled it off. And yeah, we, I, I don't think the world yeah. needs Jacob Rees-Mogg anymore. So, whilst this isn't a threat, given that I was given three choices, he'd he'd be the kill. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that turned out to be a lot easier <laughs> than I thought it would be. I was really trying to make you uh, squirm here in the last part of the show. <laughs> Uh, Michael Walker, give a quick pitch for Tisky Sour. People should, uh, as I've listened to you a couple of times now, I know the pitch. You should like and subscribe. To oh the yeah, absolutely. Channel. So, and uh, every, as most people uh, who listen to the show with any frequency will know, I completely ripped your uh, donate one hour's wage to our our. Uh, our uh, it's a, it's a good yeah, pitch. You know, it's a reasonable show request, to keep us it? up and running. Um, it is. I'm glad to hear you're having some yeah. success with it, and I certainly am myself. I've completely revamped. Uh, our funding structure on that basis. And we call it now the uh, working class heroes. Tier. <laughs> and uh, we're doing a reading group actually every other month. And uh, this, this uh, coming month in January, it's at the end of it. It's going to be uh, Leo Panich and Sam Gendon's uh, the socialist. Uh, oh, fuck me. I always forget the name of that book. The socialist something today, the socialist challenge today. Yes. It's going to be that book. Yeah. So, t- so give the pitch for Tisky Sour and uh, Navarra Media. People should definitely be supporting your program. Yeah, so um, uh, Tisky Sour is, is my podcast. That goes out live every Monday at 8 p.m. UK time. Uh, but you can watch it on YouTube anytime uh, afterwards. So recently we've had on up for Mason, as you were saying, Owen Jones. Uh, I check out, actually, if you want to see one of the arguments, check out the What is Centrism show with Grace Blakely and, and John McTurner. But yeah, check us out. Make sure you subscribe on the YouTube yeah. Uh, if you really feel like it, although you'll hear this every show, uh, <laughs> donate to the show. But yeah, check out NavarroMedia.com and, and, and follow all our crew on Twitter as well, because that's where, that's where lots of the news breaks. And see you in the comments as well, actually. We have a very vibrant comment section on the live show. Yeah. And not all, not all complete uh, morons either. Some really insightful Oh, the comment comments. is great. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the community on the live show is, is one of my favorite things about it. Um, it's the same people come back every week. You really recognize where 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 everyone's coming from. Very friendly to each other. Yeah, so, nice. so there you have it, Michael Walker. You've been it's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Let's do it again sometime. Uh, thanks for sticking in there. It's been a long episode, and uh, yeah, thanks again. All right. Oh, this new crazy mother. Yeah.